Well, John Dixon, he's a historian of sorts. Uh, in his book, he's got a book called Humilitus. And he tells this fabled story of a group of three young men who, who get on board a bus uh, in Detroit in the 1930s. And they proceed to uh, pick a fight with a young man, just a sole young man sitting down uh, the back of the bus. They insult him and they taunt him and he just sits there and remains calm and they turn up the heat on their insults and their derision of this man. But fortunately, uh, the bus arrives at this young man's stop and he stands up to leave the bus and he's a bit bigger when he's standing up than he was when he was sitting down. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a business card and he hands it to this group of little punk antagonists and just simply walks off the bus and goes on his way. Somewhat bemused, uh, this group of young men examine the card in which is embossed with the words, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> they had just tried to pick a fight with a man who would be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. One of the greatest boxers of all time. Uh, fifth, I checked it this morning just to make sure, fifth on the all-time list of boxers the world has ever seen. Word on the street was that Joe Lewis could knock a horse out with a single punch. Now, I don't know how you go about working that out. Maybe you've got to get Mel Brooks in or something or other. I don't know. But I think our modern-day sensitivities would kind of frown on that kind of an exercise. But we'll just give him that credit. But here's what John Dixon says. Here is a man of immense power and skill, capable of defending his honor with a single devastating blow. But Lewis was also known for another quality, humility. Now, humility is a character trait or, or an expression of life which has a complex backstory. Its origins have a rather negative attributes attached to this word. The word group for humility, uh, historically in history, Greco-Roman culture worlds, uh, see humility as negative. For them, virtue was in, in pride, in self-expression, in self-promotion. Elevating self was seen as a good and noble thing. To be humble was actually to be humiliated via being conquered uh, in, in, in battle or, or being shamed. It was a, always a forced lowering of a person's standards and that. And it was only... And that was the only category in which the word humility, this word group, was applied very negatively. It wasn't until Christianity, and most specifically Paul, uh, turned up that the word group took on a new meaning. Someone actually think that Paul, some most scholars and that think that Paul invented a new word in this word group to portray the picture of humility that is captured in Christ. Uh, this is the transition of how forced humility moved to being willful hu humility, humbleness, a vice to a virtue, the noble choice to forego or redirect your power, privilege and rights in the service of others, a willingness to hold power or even restrain power in the service or the good of others. This kind of humility is a willing choice, 
Unlike the lowering of a person that results from humiliation, this kind of humility, this self-lowering, also has a social dynamic. It's invested socially. It's invested into the good of others, even at the expense and the cost of the person who is being humble. As Paul continues to turn his attention to the kind of community um, that the gospel brings about uh, through Jesus, uh, that it brings about uh, through Jesus' presence, if you like, in the lives of his people, he pushes across the table this kind of humility as as the, the central marker, the character trait of his people. Uh, it's what we might call a high call to live a lowly life, a joy that is actually found in humility. Our passage today, obviously, follows on from Paul's demand that citizens of the community that the gospel has, has sprung to life, uh, followers of Jesus, this new community, must live lives worthy of the claims of this particular message of the gospel. So now, with that in view, Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions in which he expects these citizens, this community of people, just to affirm, just to say, yeah, of course. Of course those things would be there. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and he's going to trail on. But what Paul has actually done, he's not really asked a set of questions, but he's actually listed a set of relational uh, resource realities, if you like, that we share in Christ, that enable us to partner and participate in the community of people that the gospel is making. They are the resources that the Holy Spirit brings to bear when, the, when, when things like brings to bear on our lives, brings to bear in our communities, when other things seek to bear on our lives, when, when sometimes there's a spirit of erosion or division that's trying to get off the chain, which is one of the issues that Paul was addressing uh, when, he, when he begins this letter of Philip, or to the Philippines. There are two women of note, two prominent women in the Philippian church who are having trouble making peace. You put them in the room together, it's like an episode of Jerry Springer. It's not just going all that well. Paul is saying because you have encountered these things in Jesus, these list of virtues. Because your lives are animated by his new life, his life, his heart and mind should now animate, shape relationships that you have with each other. He is really saying, what Paul is really saying, is since you have these things, not if there is, it's, it's a kind of play on words. The kind of encouragement that Paul has in view here is, since you have this kind of encouragement, is that of uh, someone walking alongside of someone else in order to help them out. They've moved in alongside of them to help them out, to render assistance, to come near to them and share life with them and, and, and share their struggles and their adversity. It's perhaps the most amazing aspect of this gospel story is that God came near to us. Matthew begins his gospel account of the life of Jesus by referring to him as the promised Emmanuel, God with us, God coming and entering into human history and identifying with us across all lines. But Jesus didn't come just for a field trip to investigate the trials and travails of human experience. No, he came to face death on our behalf, to take away the power and the terror and the fear of that. 
Not only does Jesus draw near to us in life, but he is the comfort and hope, the ever-present encouragement uh, to us as we face death. Synonymous with the encouragement of walking through life, of having someone draw near to us, is this incredible comfort that we experience in Christ as we contemplate even our own mortality and our fragile existence in this world. Christ's Christ's drawing near to us. uh, His presence brings a comfort, comfort to us. And this word comfort that Paul uses here literally means a solace for the trembling heart. As a heart that is gripped by the love and the presence, the drawing near of Jesus gives to us in order that we can do life well with him, in order that we can face all kinds of adversities, even death. It's this Jesus who draws near to us and who has seen us at our very worst. Like He is not repelled by your ugliness. He still draws near to us, not to shame us, not to crush us, but rather to convict us and to restore us. There's a transformative intention to his drawing near. And there's a deep comfort in that because we know that we are more wicked than we'd ever dare imagine. We say it all the time, and yet Jesus sees that. And yet at the same time, we are more loved than we ever dare dream. This is the common experience of grace that is applied to our hearts through the Spirit. We didn't achieve it. We certainly didn't earn it. It's ours because of the affection of Christ for us. And it's our common experience of that that sees us have this common sympathy toward each other. Like we know that it was level ground around the cross. Nobody was saved or forgiven because they were any better than anybody else. These are the shared realities, the shared resources in Christ that should fuel uh, our relationships that Paul expects this affirmative answer to. Well, with these universal descriptions of what the gospel brings into the lives of believers, Paul now makes an appeal uh, for unity based in these realities. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of in full accord and of the one mind. Now, Paul here is not expecting that there will be the same uh, level of love and harmony between every member of this community. People naturally have different levels of relationships with different people based on different interests in environments. Like we have Carlton supporters in here and we have Collingwood supporters in here. But Paul says... These levels of relationship should be approached with the same received experience of grace. No one's looking down at anybody. Nobody's standing over anybody else. The unity comes from being one-souled in their experience of Christ. For Paul, there can be nothing but joy when a community operates like this because it means that they haven't just heard the gospel. It means that they're actually functionally, relationally, practically living this gospel out in these lives that we have together. They are welded together. We are welded together out of our common experience of grace that results in a common love, a common acceptance, a common sympathy for each other, not merely what you might call relational compromise but rather harmony and peace. Compromise is putting our pride in the corner. Peace is found by putting our pride to death. 
It is achieved through a mutual sense of, of wrongdoing and owning your part in the division or the fracture or whatever it is that's causing disharmony. And this results in a genuine environment of forgiveness that does not allow the past to shape the future. It's not always a case of forgive and forget, but it is always a case of forgiving is a position of not continuing to treat a person uh, through the experience of the issue at hand. It allows for relationships to move forward in deeper and stronger ways, but it also sometimes allows for relationships to move forward with clearer and better boundaries. This bears witness to the glory of God at work in a community of people who are natural-born enemies. And this is why Paul says, this would make my joy complete. Because at work, alive in this community, is this supernatural resources for relationship. Now Paul makes an appeal to one of our most unnatural impulses, humility. Uh, he makes this appeal through, new, through two negative instructions followed by a positive assertion. And this is the centerpiece of Paul's argument. It's probably the centerpiece of his whole letter. And the only way relationships can know peace and not merely just compromise. The two most deadly dividers of any relationship, whether that's a relationship between brothers and sisters, a marriage, a relationship of communities, a relationship of citizens, a selfishness, and conceit or pride. They have destroyed just about every relationship environment known to man. And Paul gives two practical suggestions on how to deal with these character traits when they kind of surface in us. Do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. This selfish ambition is, is a position of the heart that has a, a fractious spirit that produces strife, like it could give a rip about what it does to relationships. It, it, it's, it's a word that is about the intent and the approach of your heart. There is a mo- motivation there, an attitude of self-seeking, of self-promotion that creates and even seeks, sometimes even enjoys Division and it's fueled by pride. Pride which says you are more valuable than others. Pride which says you're better than others. You are more deserving than others. Or perhaps we recognize it more in the negative. I'm not as bad as that jacked up person over there. Pride convinces convinces us that we deserve our needs and our rights be met before or even be met over the needs and rights of others. Pride is all about our glory at the expense of others, and it erodes and it destroys relationships. And Paul simply says, just do nothing out of these um, motives. Paul is saying, have nothing to do with the old, familiar, self-seeking position of the heart. Put to death the impulse to elevate self above others with this self-promoting spirit. Kill that thing. But rather, he says, they are to have humility, to count others more significant than yourself. They are to pursue the noble choice to forego or redirect their power, their privilege, and their rights in the service of others, seeking the good of others. Now, this word counting here is 
is, is the action, the activity of humility. To count is literally a mathematic term, uh, meaning to, to calculate, to carefully um, resolve all the possibilities of you know, your choices in relationships. The activity of humility is to add up the needs of others while at the same time subtracting but not overlooking your interests. The bottom line of all this calculating, while costly, should have a summary uh, that is an action uh, outcome of what would benefit others. Does the sum total of your life's activities serve others more than it serves you, more than it serves your own self-interests? Of course, there's going to be times where you have to take care of your own self-interest, your own needs, and sometimes that's going to be greater than other times, and sometimes it's going to be less. But what is the sum total of your relationship mathematics? Is it mostly selfish ambitions, selfish additions, or is it mostly subtractions, thinking of the self-interest of the interests of others? How much time do you spend on others compared to how much time do you spend on advancing your own self, on advancing your own interests, and literally overlooking the interests and the needs of other people in this community? How much time do you spend on encouraging yourself over encouraging others, loving yourself over loving others? Everything about the equation of our Christian lives and relationships should be calculated with the formula of humility found in Jesus because that is the posture of heart that sets Jesus as Lord over our lives. In the equation of our salvation, the only thing that we brought to the problem was our sin. And the only way that part of the equation is solved is through humility, first by Jesus, as we'll soon see, and then by us recognizing our own need to be served and saved by Jesus. If you are in Christ, you have been through the process of grace-enabled humility. And now that grace should permeate um, all of our relationships, everything that we see and do. Well, Paul moves from telling us what we should do to how we should do it. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul does not say, hey, why don't you see if you can go and find the mind of Christ? I wonder if it's under the front seat. No one ever sits in these front seats. Paul does not say, go and struggle with all your might, white-knuckled determination to see if you can achieve the mind of Christ. Or he doesn't even say, try to imitate, try to have this mind of Christ. No, Paul says the relational quality of humility, the mind, the posture of humility is already at work in your life because of Jesus at work in your life. You have his presence. You have his mind. All that Jesus is, is always available to the one who is always available to Jesus, to the one who has humbled themselves to his saving grace. And you will only experience the mind of Christ to the degree that you partner and participate with Christ, who himself is gentle and lowly in heart. That's Jesus' incredible self-description in Matthew 11, which when you boil it down, communicates a singular reality about Jesus. He is humble. 
He takes all his power, privilege, and rights that are universally mocked by our pride-filled hearts, and he uses them to offer rest and peace to the heavy-laden hearts of this world. Paul here is saying to the Philippians, be who you are in Christ. This is more real than a simple uh, superficial imitating of Christ. He is not asking them to look at the life of Christ, study the life of Jesus and see if they can imitate it. He is saying, allow Jesus who is present in your life, which is what the phrase in Christ means, which is ubiquitous throughout Paul's writings. Allow that to shape, to be present in your relationships. And Paul moves on to what is um, the supreme resource for humility. Perhaps one of the most uh, breathtaking passages in the Bible are found in verses 6 to 11 as Paul describes the, the self-de-glorification uh, of the person of Christ. An incredible description of a member of the Godhead emptying himself of his divine rights and privileges as he stepped out of eternity and into human history, adding humanity to his divinity and living the kind of life that we were created to live towards God and towards each other. No other religion, no other world view has a God who serves Humanity, who, who serves humanity through humility, who self-discloses through humility and selflessness and affection and sympathy. Like the, the writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who, who, who not only knows us, but sympathizes with us. Paul's objective here is to not merely give us Christology. These, this passage is often used to... to, to um, uh, the doctrine of Christology and the theology around Jesus. But Paul here is what he wants to do is remind us of who it is that animates our lives individually and corporately. And as we participate more and more in that life, and as we partner together more and more in that life, we will find humility, not pride, shapes this community, shapes our individual life, shapes our lives together. Paul states that Jesus' first step from heaven toward humanity is one of renunciation it's the first step to relation building jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to grasp but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men jesus here is pictured as giving up his right to his rights it's an impossibility for Jesus to give up being divine, the divine Lord of all things to whom all creation gives praise and worship. That reality is immutable. He did not empty himself of that reality, but he did set aside his right to enjoy that reality. Paul states that even though Jesus being equal with God of the same form, and this word form expresses essential nature, not necessarily shape. That's why John begins his gospel about Jesus saying, in, in the beginning was the word. Uh, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God and he was in the beginning with God and all things were made 
through him. And it's why the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that's why Paul writes in Colossians, he describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and in him were all things made. Quite an incredible description of who Jesus is. Jesus did not reach for these titles, but rather set them aside to be identified as a person, emptying himself of every expression and expectation of deity. Renouncing his right to enjoy the rights of God, he humbly moved towards us as one of us. So in him we might see what it is to be truly human, and at the same time see what it is to be truly loved and served by God. The second step of Jesus pictured here by Paul is the step of humility or humiliation. And being found in, the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only do we see Jesus renouncing his rights, we see Jesus acting with unlimited humility, exchanging glory for servanthood, exchanging being sought after and worshipped by heaven and all of its hosts to seeking and serving you and I through giving his life in exchange for ours. He willingly assumed all the indignity and loss of privilege and standing he took on injury and shame instead of worship and glory. He experienced death in the place of life so that you and I could experience his life in the place of death. He was the only person for whom this should not have been the case. Jesus did not have to die or deal with any of the chaos that sin brings into the human experience. Because he never participated ever in sin. And yet we hear Jesus say things like, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Jesus reconciles humanity through Humility through the noble choice to obey the Father's plan to save humanity through the humbling of the Son. It's this mind of Christ, one of renunciation and humiliation, that should subdue our attempts to be self-absurdive and harbor bitterness because our pride shapes us. Remember who it is that the gospel has united you to. Who it is that has created the bonds of fellowship and relationships that exist only because of our common experience of grace that is found in God who serves us with his life. And now in Christ, his humility animates our very lives. We are to remember these realities in us and call them to mind and participate in them. When division and a spiteful spirit seeks to disrupt relationships and unity, Paul is saying, follow the mind of Christ to reestablish unity. Count and calculate what it is to renounce and, and the demanding of your rights. Have, have a willingness to count and calculate what it looks like to humbly walk through what is required to reconcile relationships. You may have to take a few hits to the ego 
You may have to absorb insult to the pride, even insult that was unwarranted or undeserved. Own a few of our own ugly truths because you and I are not like Jesus. We are not perfect. But in Jesus we are secure. That nothing can change our status before God. Nothing can shift us out of fellowship with him. So humility is not a loss of dignity and never ever should it be. Humility is the noble choice to seek the building up of someone else so that their experience of Christian fellowship leads them toward Jesus and not away from Jesus. Allowing Jesus to bring to life his nature and his character of humility. This is not merely imitating. This is a living out the life of Christ in his strength and in his presence. Well, Paul concludes that this is the kind of humility, uh, Jesus' own humility led to his exaltation. For Jesus, his uh, renunciation and his humility ended in exaltation. That was the end result of all of Jesus' faithfulness to the Father, was that he was vindicated and exalted. His vindication came in his resurrection. His exaltation described by Paul's use of a very powerful Jewish phrase, name above every name. And this is not some kind of undefined reach to try and describe supreme glory. It is a completely qualified statement of unchallenged worthiness and greatness. It is the very name of God, his character, his identity that is now being applied to Jesus. And that is a sermon in and of itself. But a principle will do to end for us today. Paul has one hope for the kind of life that he has described here, a life based on the life of Jesus. And that is that it would draw people to worship of Jesus, to lift his name above ours. Because our lives point to the presence of one in whom we find security and encouragement, the comfort and love that enables us to live toward each other making the noble choice to forego or redirect our power, privilege and rights in the service of others, having a willingness to hold power, even restrain power in the service or the good of others. Nothing in Paul's mind could make his joy more complete. Nothing could make the joy that he has in Christ more complete than looking out and seeing it at work and alive in the people of God. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that the picture of you to us is not a God of shock and awe, of immense power and might that would come and bend us to conformity, crush us in humility, that we would, in, um, in defeated fear and trembling, serve you. But rather, the picture of you toward us is a God who humbly uh, self-lowers himself to serve us, to love us, to encourage us with his own life, to deal with the problem of sin in our lives that causes all this division and fracturing with his own life and revealing to us the depth 
of his love of your love towards us revealing the depth of your encouragement uh, towards us your affection towards us the life of christ uh, reveals that you're a god who can sympathize with us and this whole picture of jesus the self-disclosure of god to humanity is the picture that should animate our lives together and we pray that more and more as we are attentive to your word and your spirit that this would be our case here at freeway and we pray uh, these things in jesus name amen